Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Katie Emmer, and I have a special treat for you. On this week's episode of Flyers Talk, you will get to hear the new Sports Uncovered episode on the Philadelphia Flyers and Pittsburgh Penguins Stanley Cup Eastern Conference semifinals game. You'll hear about the rivalry between two teams, an arena running out of food, and how their bodies held up as they played nearly three full games in one night. Here's what I need you to do. Search Sports Uncovered wherever you are listening to this podcast to get future episodes of Sports Uncovered automatically downloaded to your device for free. Without further ado, here's Mike Tirico. Overtime can push the NHL's fittest players to the limit in the regular season when they play a maximum of five extra minutes. What happens in the playoffs when the overtime periods continue until one team scores? What if one overtime turns into two and eventually a fifth sudden death overtime against your most bitter rival? That's what happened to the Philadelphia Flyers and the Pittsburgh Penguins in game four of the 2000 Eastern Conference semifinals. The longest game in the modern era of the NHL. How did the players, broadcasters, and even fans make it through seven hours of hockey? I'm Mike Tirico, and this is Sports Uncovered, Marathon on Ice. If somehow you are just joining us, you're not looking at a tape broadcast. Still live and in color. Game four of the Eastern Conference semifinals heading into the eighth period of play. The fifth overtime. We were basically running on fumes at this point. Now, this is the longest game of the modern era. And yet we were almost giddy. Like it was funny that we were playing a game this long and, you know, it didn't end. The eighth period, and you're at the end of a shift, you're out of gas. You just kind of survive. You can just see the pain in everybody's eyes as they go over to the bench. In surviving, you embrace the fact that it was becoming an historic game. I'm absolutely amazed that they can get one foot in front of the other. Somebody end this thing. Seriously, I'm going to die. To understand the true magnitude of this game, we need to explore the sometimes tumultuous history of these two franchises. Hello everyone, I'm Mark Zumoff. The year was 1967. The Penguins and Flyers both entered the National Hockey League as part of what was known as the Expansion Six. While most of the teams in that group struggled to compete with the original six NHL clubs in their first few years, the Flyers took a different path. Longtime hockey journalist Jay Greenberg is here to walk us through it. They had a plan that was well ahead of what the other five teams that came in with them had. Most of them were just trying to survive because they put all the six new teams in one division. Most of them just looked at it themselves as just their own league and didn't even think about it was years and years and years away from being able to compete with the established teams. So mostly what they concentrated on was beating each other, making the playoffs and having a run. That was seemed more feasible to them. 
The Flyers were the first expansion team to win the Stanley Cup, defeating the Boston Bruins in the 1974 Finals. With a penchant for fighting, the Flyers earned the nickname the Broad Street Bullies and won back-to-back -back titles in 74 and 1975. They earned Stanley Cup final berths another four times through the 70s and 80s. During that time, the Penguins won just one playoff series and were incapable of beating the Flyers in Philadelphia. They weren't really competitive. The Penguins came to the spectrum for 43 straight games from 74 to 89 over 15 years without winning a game at the spectrum. That's how lopsided it was. A six-hour drive across Pennsylvania separates Pittsburgh and Philadelphia but proximity alone never guaranteed a rivalry. 22 years after the Penguins and Flyers entered the league, the players and fans had never truly developed the type of hatred that only playoff hockey can bring. That was until 1989. The division finals, that's what the second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs was previously known as. It was the first time in history that Philadelphia and Pittsburgh played playoff hockey against one another. And for the Pens, it would be the first glimpse at a successful new era led by superstar forward Mario Lemieux, drafted first overall in 1984. The first series in 89, the um, Penguins won two of the first three and Flyers tied, tied one, one game four fairly convincingly. Mario was hurt wrenched his neck sometime during game four and there was speculation whether he was going to play in game five and he came out with a huge surge of adrenaline the place went crazy at the civic arena when he came out that he was going to play and he went crazy he had a seven point night and they beat the flyers 10 to 7 and they were in the process of wearing the flyers down they won game six easily back at the spectrum and then they won game seven in pittsburgh four to one when they they were the better team at that stage. That series signified a changing of the guard for both teams. In 1990, the Penguins added fifth overall draft pick Yaramir Yager to their core alongside Lemieux. That led to back-to-back -back Stanley Cup titles in 1991 and 1992. Hockey analyst Al Morganti remembers their dominance. Because of the star quality players that they had, it was kind of like choose your weapon with them. They'll just do whatever it, it takes and we'll have our best players on the ice. And when it comes to when it comes to the point of our best players versus your best players, we're just going to beat you with that. The, the top end talent was so intimidating. While Pittsburgh was parading the cup through their streets, the early 90s were the first truly down years in Flyers history. To help remedy that problem, they traded for a superstar of their own adding Eric Lindros to their club ahead of the 92 season. Well, when Eric Lindros was playing at his best, his impact on any series was, was tremendous. Uh, in the postseason in 95 and in 97, he was just a physical force. Those were the times with Eric Lindros when you remember when he came to the Flyers thinking he's going to win multiple cups with this team. Lindros carried his team to the playoffs for the first time in 1995 and at the Stanley Cup Final in 1997, a year in which they beat Pittsburgh in the conference quarterfinals in a decisive five games. 
Lemieux had announced his intention to retire following the 97 playoffs. It even got a standing ovation from an otherwise hostile Philadelphia crowd following the game. That just goes to show you what type of player Mario Lemieux was. ESPN broadcaster Steve Levy described Lemieux's lasting impact. He was classy, he was elegant, he was statuesque, and no one had seen before, and I'm not sure anyone has seen since even, uh, someone with that size and that skill level to have the hands that he had for a big man was simply unprecedented. The way he played the game, the flair he had, he really could do it all. Both teams entered the 1999-2000 season in turmoil. It was an emotionally dragging season, right from the summer on through the entire season. Tertishny, a young player, gets in that voting accident, and I know a lot of fans didn't know the name because he wasn't an established player, but within the organization, it was just bone-jarring situation that went through there. Gene Hart, uh, we lost Gene Hart, the voice of the Flyers. So going into the season, it was, uh, it was already kind of taking a, a toll on everybody. Roger Nielsen having cancer to get through an entire season knowing what Roger Nielsen was going through. And you have to remember with Roger Nielsen, in addition to being the Flyers coach, this was a man who was a citizen of not just the NHL, a citizen of the world of hockey. That's how big a stature the man had. By March, Eric Lindros suffered his second concussion in two months. He returned for a handful of games, but the after effects of the head injuries lingered. He missed the rest of the regular season, which led to a very public blame game between Eric, his father and agent Carl, and general manager Bob Clark. Ultimately, the breaking point came over the, the number of concussions that Eric sustained and the Flyers' medical treatment of those. There was no protocol in those days for when players could come back, how long they had to sit out, how they had to be checked out. It was just largely by feel by the trainers and by the player and by the club. There was a lot of distrust between the parties. In Pittsburgh, the Penguins nearly ceased to exist. Owners Roger Marino and Howard Baldwin had placed the team into bankruptcy, which meant it could have either been completely dissolved or moved to another city. That's when retired superstar Mario Lemieux took center stage in the ultimate power play. One of the great stories in sports was Mario Lemieux ended up buying the team. He was owed so much money in terms of salary. The thing about Lemieux that I think some sports fans fail to recognize, there are people who are important to franchises. But I think I could argue pretty strongly that nobody's been as important as Mario Lemieux to the Penguins. Twice he literally saved the franchise. Just coming there saved the franchise. They were bankrupt in the 80s. Then they get bankrupt again. And Mario basically says, the equity here is money that you've owed to me. Let's do it this way. I'll have some ownership in the team. I'll take over ownership in the team. This quite, you know, literally is a, a player saying, I'm going to save this situation. That was the backdrop for the Flyers and Penguins' third head-to-head -head playoff series in their histories. Keith Primo, the Flyers' big trade deadline acquisition that year, described how the players matched up on the ice. We were definitely two very different teams. We were very much blue-collar, jovial, good-time kind of group. They were very highly skilled, offensively talented, potent team so 
we stacked up well against them, but if you were to say who is the more talented team, at the end of the day, I wouldn't even consider it close. That's because Pittsburgh overhauled its roster, which included newly acquired Penguins goaltender Ron Tugnut. When I arrived in Pittsburgh, we weren't even really considered to make the playoffs at that time, and we got hot uh, after the break. I think it was upwards of 10 new players on that roster, and for whatever reason, we caught fire then, and we rode that into a playoff spot, and then we, we rolled over the heavily favored Washington Capitals at five games. So we were feeling pretty good about ourselves. Flyers goalie Brian Boucher had the same thoughts about his team. Heading into the series, I, I think we felt good. We beat Buffalo in five games, relatively smooth sailing. We were wrapped up pretty quick, had a fairly lengthy layoff in between first and second round, and I think we were a little bit rusty to start that second round. Philadelphia showed that rust in game one. Ron Tudnut played very well. I think a little bit of panic set in on the flyer side. When you don't score, you get get a little tight. Got off to a bad start in the series and of course put pressure on them to win the second game. Penguins goaltending, as I mentioned, was probably better than the Flyers, what the Flyers were getting for those first two games. There was a brawl. The Flyers started a brawl. I think it had some effect in changing the series. Flyers winger Keith Jones was right in the middle of that brawl. At the end of game two, I had a pushing match with Bob Bugner now, the head coach in San Jose, and it was at center ice. And it looked like they were going to run away with the series anytime you lose the first two games at home. Uh, so I started to try to stir it up a little bit. He punched me in the head three or four times, and Luke Richardson couldn't get there fast enough. So he took he took a slap shot with the puck from his own end and hit Bugner in the chest and knocked him down. And I remember I'm dying laughing and everyone's coming around and I'm pointing at Bugner and he's down. Like he he's hitting the chest with a slap shot. Afterwards, the Penguins asked the NHL to investigate Luke Richardson, but he wasn't exactly a player known for his shooting ability. Bob Clark couldn't help but laugh. After the game, Clarkie got a call from the league, and they're like, hey, uh, the Penguins are, want us to investigate Luke Richardson. Uh, he shot the puck intentionally and hit Bob Bugner in the chest. Well, you can't do that. And Clarkie answered them by saying, let me get this right. Luke Richardson shot a puck, and it hit where he was aiming. <laughs> On the game three, we went. The Flyers took that little boost into a cross-state flight to Pittsburgh for game three, facing a virtual must-win on the road. What many people forget is that this one went into overtime, too. Andy Delmore ended up scoring the overtime winner, a defenseman that really had a breakthrough playoff that year. His overtime winner gave us a belief that we had a chance. In the playoffs, you win one, and sometimes that ball starts rolling. You know that a series can end quickly if you don't get your act together. So going to Pittsburgh, the level of urgency had to come up big time. Had a big win in game three in overtime. With the Flyers' win, Pittsburgh led the series two games to one, and both teams had a night off before game four. Jonesy and winger Rick Tockett plan to catch a movie and call it a night. But much like the series, the night ran unexpectedly long. Tock and I rented a car because we, <laughs> want, we wanted to go to the movies. <laughs> and so we go watch this entire movie. I don't even know what movie it was. We watched the whole movie. We come back out of the movie theater. And we're like, man, the car's still running. 
And I'm like, talk with the driver. And he goes, oh, I, I, that's crazy. I think I left the keys in. You didn't just leave them in. We were locked out. Like, it's almost impossible to lock a car with the keys in it while it's running. Tuckett's side of the story. That two-hour movie turned into an eight-hour ordeal. Josie, I think we might have had pregame in the parking lot the night before. It was an eight-hour. I know it was eight hours. I felt so bad. I left the keys in the car. I guess I was nervous. Flyers Talk is brought to you by Wells Fargo. When our communities need us, Wells Fargo is here to help. Thursday, May 4th, 2000. The Flyers and Penguins faced off for Game 4 of their series at 7.38 p.m. Eastern Time. The game was aired locally in each team's city with each team's broadcasters. But it was also produced by ESPN for broadcast to a national audience. Steve Levy called the game. Well, game four is always like that in a competitive series, right? It's really the swing turning point, I think, between, hey, you know, we're gonna have a long series and buckle up to, it's gonna be a short series. You know, the Flyers sort of, okay, now wait a second, now we've got some life here. And again, there was no pressure on them. It was all pressure on Pittsburgh, especially now being at home. And again, the Flyers without Lindros. This was Pittsburgh's series to win and go on and do big things. It didn't take long for Pittsburgh to grab the lead. Eric Desjardins, the puck to Chris Terrian. Terrian floating one ahead, bounce through LeClaire. Robert Lang playing it back to the Philadelphia line. Kovalev away from LeClaire with a shot score! Alexi Kovalev answers the critics with a goal to make it 1-0 Pittsburgh, just 2-22 in. Flyers goalie Brian Boucher. It was Kovalev who scored, I believe it was the first shot of the game. He came across the blue line. You know, he was always a threat when he had the puck on his stick. When he was coming through the neutral zone, I, I knew that he had a bomb of a shot. I knew he had the skill to get around defenders. So you always had to be on your toes. And I do remember that first shot going in. And, you know, you kind of wonder at that point, oh, boy, how is this going to play out? Ron Tugnut's own performance contributed to that momentum while taking a tremendous physical toll, as we will later find out, earning the respect from his opposing goalie. It was one of those games where we couldn't solve Ron Tugnut the whole game. I mean, he was fantastic. He beat, I believe it was Washington in the first round they beat. He was fantastic in that series. He carried a strong play over into our series, winning games one and two in Philly. He was good in game three, although we got that win in overtime. And in game four, he was sensational. It took us, I believe, late into the third period till we tied that game and went off Johnny Leclerc's head to tie the game, and then we just about played all night, and that's because Ron Tugnet was, was fantastic. Rodina and Lankow in the faceoff. Lankow won it to Desjardins. The shot deflection. Score! John LeClaire was in front, and I believe he got a piece of it. A power play goal. The 1-1 tie carried into the first overtime. The Flyers' Chris Terrian and his partner on defense, Eric Desjardins, would be in for five more periods of head-to-head -head hockey against two of the top scorers in the league. Here I am going back and forth. Me and Desjardins, we were still trying to do matchups. They were given, they gave up on him in Pittsburgh. But every single shift for eight periods, we had Yager and Kovalev coming down on us every rush chance with any shots that could have gone in the back of the net. Ron Tugna. I kept sitting there looking at my, my teammates in the dressing room. I'm looking at Kovalev, I'm looking at Yager, and I'm Straka, and I'm like, okay, guys, seriously, we played four periods here, not one of you guys can put one in? Like, Seriously, you know, the game got slow because guys got tired and it just seems like I love playoff hockey because the referees let stuff go, but there was more hooking, more holding, less penalties. 
and the game just just seemed like it just kept going on in a really slow pace. And for the first time since 1996, the Flyers had themselves a double overtime game ahead, as this one has not been decided through four periods of play. The scoreless play dragged on through the second and third overtimes and showed no signs of letting up. The Flyers and Penguins tied as they have been for a long time at one. As we are headed to the seventh period of play, the fourth overtime, it is now the tenth longest hockey game in NHL history. By this point, Pittsburgh's Mellon Arena got quiet. Many fans went home, while others couldn't bring themselves to leave. There was a lot of fans, that, especially young kids, that their, their mom or dad was not leaving, and that kid was getting some shut-eye in during play. So you would often look up in the crowd during a face-off and see a, a kid or a wife or husband leaning on the person beside them. It was almost like they were taking turns. One of the uh, individuals would watch for a little bit, and then they'd take a nap and come back. ESPN Steve Levy recalled how the late hour affected a member of his production team. I mean, one of the funny stories that came out of that night, we would pick up like a stage manager in every city, right, to help us in the broadcast booth. Usually it was a young person, and it was a school night. Like after the first overtime, his mom came and picked him up. And he, you know, he just left, so we were abandoned. The length of the game took a toll on Ron Tugnut's mother. My mom couldn't watch the game anymore at around 11.30. She goes, that's it, I can't take the stress. So she turned it off and she woke up at 1.30 and she goes, I gotta go find out the score. And she turned it on and the game was still going. So, you know, they, they ran out of beer in the Pittsburgh arena. People were sleeping in the stands. It was crazy. One hockey fan who was watching from home was a medical student. Now the director of orthopedic sports medicine at Virtua Health in southern New Jersey, Dr. Sean McMillan immediately noticed the physical effects on the players. You could see that just the look on their face, there was a bit of lethargy. There was almost a lost in space look sometimes on the players' faces because they were just mentally and physically wearing down. These guys were almost hoisting themselves up over the boards to get off for their shifts and get on for their shifts. They had you know, dead legs or cement in their legs. That's exactly what Flyers scoring machine Mark Recchi experienced. He was stunned at the time, but he can laugh about it now. I got an IV after the fourth period, and I went out and I started, and I completely seized up. <laughs> I completely cramped up, and I'm standing on the ice going, I can't move right now. The physical toll was particularly grueling for the goalies. I mean, I was probably in the fourth over time, I started to feel it, then went to the locker room. And when I came out for the start of the fifth, I think like this is when I was, you know, getting near the end. Like I was like, I'm, you know, my legs were seizing up, my calves were seizing up, my fingers were, you know, were cramping, like, you know, like they would get, you know, my, my wrists and my forearms. I remember I was scraping the crease and my hips were like starting to cramp up. So I, I stopped, I stopped scraping the crease. I was like, I'm not gonna do that. Then I would try and go stretch one part of my hip and when I did that, something else cramped up. So I was like, you know what? I'm not even going to stretch either because I'm, I, I don't want to end up seizing right here before the, the period starts. So I kind of just I kind of just winged it. Thankfully, nothing bad happened. But I honestly don't know if I could have played another full period. I, the, the way I was feeling, the adrenaline got me through up to that point. But I think midway through the fourth overtime and going into the fifth, I really started to feel the cramps come on. And once they come on, there's no stopping it. Dr. Sean McMillan. The difference between a pro athlete cramping up and, and say, you know, me, me and you cramping up is quite simply, 
it's more oftentimes about electrolyte imbalances with these pro athletes. So they're losing fluid and they're losing electrolytes. They're sweating, they're losing their sodium content, they're losing their potassium, and those need to be replenished with those high energy drinks or IV fluids. Whereas if it's just me and you out there playing basketball on the court, we're gonna just dehydrate and lose regular water and, and sodium at a level, at a much lower rate. So whereas you and I can take it easy and, and we can go ahead and get some water and maybe a Gatorade and be fine, these athletes are losing their fluid and their electrolytes at a much higher rate, where it's almost impossible to catch up. Ice side reporter Pat Boyle asked Flyers assistant coach Mike Stuthers how the physical challenges impacted their strategy. No player ever wants to come out, you know, they're going to always tell you that. So are you guys eyeing each guy up on the bench and figuring out who needs to sit for a period of time? And how are you going about it? Would you rest somebody for, say, the first five, six minutes, hopefully if that if it continues, they have legs to carry on? I don't think so. I think what we've told our guys is to just uh, keep the shift short, uh, give what they have for maybe uh, 20, 25 seconds, and then try and get a line change. And whether the puck's in the offensive zone or not, change one at a time. We certainly don't want to get caught with three guys changing at the same time and have Pittsburgh counter on us and get an odd man rush. To put that in perspective, 20 to 25 seconds is roughly half the length of the average NHL shift. Penguins defenseman Bob Bugner recalls how the entire approach to the game changed. And that was the one thing too. I mean, you couldn't get afford to get caught out tired. So I mean, your shifts were short, and you know, a lot of the hitting, obviously, after the first three periods, it wasn't physical. You were just almost trying to play a zone and contain guys instead of getting into those 50-50 battles in the corners and trying to lay big hits because you just didn't have anything left in you, and you're just trying to keep everybody to the outside. I had a couple shifts in the game where I jumped on the ice. And the bench was right near the center ice red line. I took three steps one way and stopped, went back three the other way, stopped and turned to the bench and said change and just jumped on. So I, I can guarantee you I had a couple shifts that were less than 10 seconds long. He went from blue line to blue line, then back to the bench and changed. Oh, he was classic. Yeah, yeah. I, he was talking about, man, he's like, somebody end this thing. Seriously, I'm going to die. Boucher wasn't the only one to see Keith Jones in short shifts. The memory still makes Keith Primo laugh. Do you remember at one time literally stepping on the ice and stepping back off? Yeah, you just go for a little loop, take take six, seven seconds, loop back to the bench and get a change. <laughs> Despite the utter exhaustion and real possibility that the series was on the line depending on the next goal, the guy still had time to make jokes. Rick Tockett describes the scene in the locker room. I remember Johnny LeClaire, a bunch of guys were exhausted and they were getting IVs. Jonesy came with a piece of pizza in his mouth and he put sauce all over his mouth and goes, all right, boys, all you guys with flat bellies and stuff, you guys are done. Now that the bear takes over, I've been hibernating all year. Now this fat's going to take over. I never laughed so hard in my life. I think we all like embraced what was happening. Yeah. You could see it as things started to wear on that it was going to take a miraculous effort to score a goal in the game. So you just kind of survived. And in surviving, you embraced the fact that it was becoming an historic game. Both teams had problems that weren't evident on the ice. With all that extra time spent in the same equipment, how do they keep it all dry? Here's Barry Hanrahan, then a special assistant in the Flyers front office. Back in 2000, the common thing to do was just take a hairdryer, stick some PVC pipe at the end of it with different outlets, maybe four or five per hairdryer and run about three or four hairdryers sitting on the ground. That's how they dried the gloves. So they were drying gloves. As the overtimes went on, the, the players were going through their undershirts 
getting soaked with sweat. They were taking those off. They were running them down the hall to the laundry machine and just throwing them in the dryer for five or six minutes just to get some sort of dryness to them. And what about the food? How do you keep 56 hockey players fed during a game like this, in addition to all the fans in attendance? Bugner and Jones remember Mellon Arena literally running out of food. One of the trainers saying that, uh, I don't know what period it was in, in overtime, the whole facility was out of food. The fans, I mean, they've shut everything down because they had no more pop left, hot dogs left, anything in the, in the stadium. So I remember our trainers bringing in uh, a ton of pizza in between periods. And, you know, we were out of everything too when it came to, you know, the liquid gels that guys would, would eat for uh, in between periods and the power bars and everything. They were all gone. The concessions had emptied everything that they had in supplies. And we were stealing from them to make sure we had some food to eat and eventually had to order pizzas to make sure that we continued to get plenty of nourishment. Pat Boyle. There were two entrances to the Flyers locker room. There was one that was right near the bench. And then there was one in the back end. And I was kind of in between the two. They brought down a cart that had, like I would say, you know, 10 pizza boxes at least. And they were stacked outside the door. And then as soon as the intermission hit, you know, trainers and locker room staff brought in the pizzas. We couldn't believe we were playing as long as we did. I, I think for a lot of us, we hadn't played in a game that long. And we had run out of food. We had run, you know, we usually get pizzas for post game to hold us over from the rink until we get to the plane. We had gone through those. We'd gone through all the power bars that we had and granola bars and all the snacks that were in the locker room. We were basically running on fumes at this point. If somehow you are just joining us, we are not, uh, you're not looking at uh, tape broadcasts. This is still live and in color. Game four of the Eastern Conference semifinals heading into the eighth period of play. The fifth overtime. I can't go more than 10 second shifts. This is the fifth overtime, right? And I looked at Luke, Luke goes, I'm done. I can't do this. This is insane. My, I thought I, it was so bad that I thought my knees, my legs were going to buckle and my knees were going to blow up. It's tough physically to play in a game like that, but really the, the mental fatigue that comes with a game like that is just, it's indescribable, truthfully. I mean, so much pressure just knowing that, you know, you cannot make a mistake. That's probably the the toughest part, but your adrenaline's going so much that it gets you through it. Stanley Cup playoff overtime hockey is the greatest thing going because every shot is potentially a game-winning shot. So you're watching five periods of on the edge of your seat action, you know, where any shot or deflection or redirection could be the thing that ends it. So yeah, you thought you were witnessing something that was special. For sure. It became really special for the Flyers and their fans at 2.35 in the morning, 12.01 of the fifth overtime, when Keith Primo finally broke through. Primo off the bench, is onside. Primo moves deep with it, stops, the shot! He's good! He's good! Keith Primo is able to win! And the Flyers win the test of wills! And this baby goes back to Philly, even at two games apiece! Unbelievable! Thank goodness it's over! At the time, it was a goal that allowed us to win a playoff game. 
as I was pacing in the hallway afterwards, I just thought to myself, years from now, this is going to have a lot more meaning than what it does still today because of the longevity of the game, and, and it has. It's kind of taken on a life of its own. Remember those short shifts? Keith Jones was so focused on getting off the ice, he actually missed the game-winning goal. All that was on my mind was I got to get off the ice, and as the puck went past me, as he was taking the shot, I was directly facing the bench and had no idea why our guys were jumping up in the air, hopping onto the ice. All I could think, I was so exhausted, was I think we're going to get too many men on the ice again. While the Flyers were celebrating, Bugner and the Penguins players weren't as down about the loss as you'd think. I'll never forget the feeling when Primo scored. You were so tired. Uh, I don't even want to say relieved because you lost, but you were after that eight periods you were just so gassed that it was it wasn't a lot of emotion coming off the ice losing that game it was disappointing but it was you know it was almost like it was finally over chris terrian was exhausted and not quite sure how he wound up in the middle of the celebration i was the first guy in primo's arms and i still don't know how that happened when jones realized they'd won the game his focus quickly turned what about his stats he and Tockett recall what happened next. And all I said to Tockett, I don't know if he remembers this or not, but I said to him as he's going to pile in with everybody and celebrate, I go, hey, that's my plus. Don't try to... That's your plus. That. Yeah, I did. I remember that. Hey, don't take my plus. It's typical for road teams in hockey to pack up and leave the arena immediately after a game, heading right to the airport. That wouldn't change just because this game was heading deep into the night. Calling the pilots turned into a superstition for Hanrahan, then a special assistant with the team, and now the Flyers' assistant GM. And at that time, you just want to make sure, okay, are, are they good? Are they, they able to still fly in their time frame? Because they have rest periods they have to follow and everything. So you just want to make sure they were good to go, even if this thing went on through the night, which it ended up doing. So then I called my wife again. And by the second overtime, I called her after the second and third, same time of the pilot. She's like, why do you keep calling me? I said, I can't stop calling you. I called you after the regulation. I called you after the first overtime. I got to keep the I got to keep the ritual going of the same thing. I call the pilots. I call you. Just check it in. She goes, I'm trying to fall asleep. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> by that time, she said, screw it. And she just stayed up and watched the game. How do the players' families handle watching the historic game? Bugner initially had his little ones in the arena. They were all young. They were obviously taken home, I think, after the the second or third overtime. It was just too late. You look in the stands even as a player and you see you know little kids sleeping on their parents. I had plans, it was a day off the next day, so we had plans we're gonna bring the kids to the Pittsburgh Zoo. I'll never forget, I think I'm getting home at about four in the morning and you know little kids are up at seven or eight o'clock and how tired I was walking around the zoo the next day in Pittsburgh with a, with a bunch of young kids and uh, just trying to you know, stay awake. It was uh, not only mentally draining, but obviously physically. While Bugner was at the zoo with his family, Flyers goalie Brian Boucher spent most of the day taking a well-earned nap. His wife, Melissa, recalls the day. I do remember them coming in early in the morning when the sun was rising, and I was excited to talk about everything, but Brian was pretty exhausted and just wanted to go to bed. I was pretty exhausted too. I think I, you know, I wanted to say I enjoyed that game, but I don't really think I did. I was a nervous wreck the whole time watching. Ron Tugnut. I remember needing help going up the stairs. My legs just, I had nothing left. I was drained. I had lost 12 pounds in that game. My plucking weight probably at that time was anywhere from, you know, probably about 158 pounds, 160 pounds. So I lost 12 and I was fairly 
I felt like I lost a lot of strength in my legs and the lactic acid and so forth. After all of that hockey, all of that effort, the series was tied at two games apiece. The Flyers had the momentum, though, and they knew it. After we won that game, Preems, when he scored that goal, for me, it was our series. We're not losing game five in Philly. Not a chance, and I think that that game in Philly, we won that game, and I think the Penguins knew they were done. We did know, and I'll tell you after that game, both of you, that that game, it was 2-2 in the series at the time. We knew we were, we were winning that series. It didn't matter. They were done. You can't lose a game like that five overtimes and expect to just turn it back on next game. It's literally we spiked a hole in their canoe when there was no there was no paddling the shore for them. Bugner knew it too. You know, you hate to say it, and you probably wouldn't admit it at that time, but now looking back on it, you know, it took so much gas out of our tank and so much mental fortitude to try and stay in that series after losing that big game that, you know, it was almost over after that game. Journalist Jay Greenberg. They saw the looks on the Penguins' faces as they left the ice. To play that long and play that hard to that to the point of exhaustion and not win that game was, was really devastating to them. And they came and the Penguins came out in game five, obviously not ready to play. The Flyers jumped to a big early lead and cruised. Game six, the Penguins were much more competitive. Flyers squeaked out a two to one win. The Flyers won the series. But while the marathon on ice is a cherished memory for their fans and the players involved, it's possible that it took too much out of them for the rest of the playoffs. Philly went to the next round against Jersey, and I think they were up three games to one and ended up losing. So that one game, I think, affected both teams in a much different way. But uh, at the end, I think it got us both. The collapse to the Devils in the Eastern Conference Finals was just the start of the pain for the Flyers. In Game 6, Eric Lindros, who was stripped of his captaincy after the public fallout regarding his concussion situation, who had missed the run-up to the playoffs, who had missed the series against Buffalo, who had missed the series against Pittsburgh, tried to make a comeback for the ages. Flyers forward John LeClaire recalls the feelings on Lindros coming back. There was a discussion between, uh, you know, some of the older players and the coaching staff about, you know, do we want to upset the chemistry and stuff like that. The thought process was, why won't you add a great player to your lineup? And, you know, truthfully, I think Eric was our best player in game six. We ended up losing by a goal. I think he scored the goal, and he was our best player that game. You know, just, we did have chemistry, but no matter what the chemistry is, when you can add a caliber player like that, um, you know, it just increases your chances of winning. As LeClaire mentioned, Eric was the Flyers' best player in game six. But in game seven, just seven minutes and 50 seconds in. I was right behind him. I remember yelling to look out and to get your head up. It was early in that game. And then it was just complete silence in the building. So it was, it was, not, a, it was not a pretty sight. And I, I, at that moment, thought that his career would be over. I guess it was as a flyer. But there was a real ominous feeling that came with what happened out there. And it was, it was a difficult time for our team to kind of get back going again. But we did. And ended up, I give our guys a lot of credit, hung in there right till the last couple of minutes of that game before losing game seven and watching the Devils go on and win the Stanley Cup. Lindros, the star player who carried them to the Stanley Cup final just three years prior, would never play in a Flyers uniform again, dramatically altering the course of the next decade for the club. Without number 88, Philly would reach the Eastern Conference Finals again in 2004 with the same core that got them there in 2000. That's the closest that group would get. 
Keith Jones and many Flyers fans wonder what could have been. I do believe that there was something special that was really bonding that team together. And unfortunately for Eric, it wasn't him because he was absent. It kind of became us against the world type mentality. So I do think it's a different kind of circumstance. And I don't think it's obviously all on Eric. Had he been there, we would have been a better team. But there is some, a lot of whispers behind the scenes that think that we could have won a Stanley Cup that year if, in fact, we had just kept things going the way that they were going. The Penguins became one of the worst teams in the league those years after the marathon on ice. But few in Pittsburgh would argue that it was a bad thing. Lemieux was ultimately able to stabilize the team's financial situation, securing a new arena in a 2007 deal with city and state officials that after a long history of relocation rumors, keeps the pens in the Steel City for the foreseeable future. Those down years on the ice, of course, led to high draft picks as well, and three of the most consequential stars in Penguins history. Goaltender Marc-Andre Fleury, drafted first overall in 2003. Evgeny Malkin, drafted second overall in 2004. And Sidney Crosby, drafted first overall in 2005, would become the next great core to bring the cup to Pittsburgh. Scramble drop comes to the point. Rafalski shoots, knocked down in the net. Scramble lifts and shoots in a tremendous save by Fleury. They've done it. The Penguins have done it. Sidney Crosby and the Penguins have won the Stanley Cup. While Philadelphia was the dominant Pennsylvania hockey club in the first 20 years of Flyers and Penguins history, it's undeniable that dominance has shifted to Pittsburgh in the 20 years since the Marathon on Ice. They've defeated the Flyers in three of four playoff series since then, and they've hoisted Lord Stanley three times. The Flyers are still searching for their first title since 1975. With hindsight being 2020, one might wonder, what would have happened if the Marathon on Ice went the opposite way? Would the Penguins have been able to hold off the Devils in the conference finals? Would another cup run have kept them from selling off Yager the next season, keeping them competitive enough to the point where they would have never drafted Crosby and company? Would the Flyers have gone on to win the cup in 2000 had Eric Lindros never come back? Would he have returned to the Flyers the next season instead of rushing back to play New Jersey in game six? If he did, would the Flyers have taken another cup run in the following years? There's no way to know, of course. But we do know that the legacy of what happened after that historic five-overtime game has lived up to the legacy of the game itself. This was Sports Uncovered, Marathon on Ice. Go back to the Sports Uncovered feed right now to download last week's episode. Sean Taylor the NFL superstar we didn't get to know. While you're there, tap the subscribe button to get automatic downloads of Sports Uncovered for free. Stay tuned for a preview of next Thursday's episode of Sports Uncovered. I'm Mike Tirico, and on the next episode of Sports Uncovered. We go into the Super Bowl knowing that we don't have a chance to win. In my mind, that was already turning into a circus. You add that to another circus, and it's full-fledged. My biggest concern at this time, even before the game, was for his safety. Filled my backpack up with all the liquor from the minibar and took off towards Mexico. Here we are, and everyone's talking about Barrett Robbins. 
And I said to myself, this is not good. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Sports Uncovered for free wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to Sports Uncovered right now to get the mysterious disappearance that changed the Super Bowl. Automatically download it to your device for free. For more, visit NBCSportsPhiladelphia.com and follow at NBCSPhilly. This episode of Sports Uncovered was produced by NBC Sports Philadelphia. The producers were Ben Berry and Joe Fordyce. Editing support was provided by Ryan Waldoff and James Convey. The supervising producers were Michelle Murray and Travis Hughes. Chris Hine provided creative and sound direction for Sports Uncovered. The coordinating producer of Sports Uncovered is Seth Rubenroy. The supervising producers are Dominic Ridgard and John Slobotkin. The executive producer is Ted Griggs. Special thanks to Fran Rotella for guest coordination. I'm Mark Zuboff. Thanks for listening. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.